Let's get back into Acts. We've been away for one week, so we're going to jump back in. I'm not positive how far we will get. I'm shooting for two chapters, so y'all hold on. Here we go. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. Uh, No, I promise it won't be uh, drudgery. I'm, I'm seeking to help you to understand this passage. How do people respond when we reveal that we are Christ followers? How do people respond to you when you reveal that Jesus is your Lord and that you want to serve him? Today we're going to observe that Christians are often considered either irrational wackos or enemies unworthy of living and better off silent. The world often looks at us when we expose that we are believers and they think we're nuts, to put it simply, or that we need to be silenced. This only happens, by the way, if we share the gospel accurately. Otherwise, they will look at us and say, oh yeah, you're just like me. We see in the apostle Paul's life a great example of how we who believe in Christ should live as strangers and aliens in this world. I mentioned that to the kids this morning. I think it was I was talking to them about being aliens, and they were like, I don't want to be an alien. Uh, we're not talking about UFOs here. We're talking about this is not our home. This, we don't fit in here. Christians don't fit in the world. Peter talked about this in 1 Peter. He said this, these words to the believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. He said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God, in the day of visitation. In our passage today, we see the Apostle Paul lives this out beautifully. Paul is the central focus of these chapters. Paul shows us how we live set-apart lives in a world that often doesn't get us and wants us silenced. Despite his mistreatment, Paul is resolved to exalt Christ all the way to Rome. It doesn't matter his circumstances. Even today, as he is in, in our passage, he's in prison. He is seeking to exalt Jesus. He's not even necessarily crying or complaining that he's in jail. Remember, the Lord Jesus told Paul that he would testify in Rome. Look at your Bibles in Acts 23, 11, a key verse. And it really is the verse that points us all the way to the end of the book of Acts. Remember, he has been persecuted here, and, and, Paul, and, and Jesus visits Paul. It says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side, Paul's side, and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Folks, this is a promise. This is a promise that Paul depended on. He trusted in the Lord and knew that he was going to Rome How long it would take for him to get there is a whole other issue. But he knew that God had promised. Paul was in Jerusalem when Jesus had told him this, but now he's been transferred to Caesarea. God had providentially acted in order to protect him. In chapter 24, we saw Paul stood trial before the Roman governor 
Felix. Y'all remember this, right? Felix had realized Paul was not worthy of death, but at the same time wanted to please the Jews. So what did he do with Paul? He left him in prison for two years. Felix and his adulterous wife, Drusilla, had heard Paul's explanation of righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. And it had crushed Felix, remember? He had become afraid. But, as we saw, he failed to repent. Just this fear did not give him a fear to the point of repentance. God did not grant him a heart change. Instead, Felix left Paul in jail for two years until the term of his term of rule was over. Then the Roman governor, Festus, succeeds Felix, as we see in our passage today. This is where we pick up our study today. Paul has made one defense, and now two more defenses are going to follow before Paul is taken to Rome. And that I can't wait to get that chapter. 27 is amazing in Acts chapter 27, the ship the journey to Rome. It's going to be a fun one. I want to summarize these next two defenses today. Again, I don't think that they are hard to follow the storyline. I don't think you need a lot of commentary. If you have questions and I don't cover a detail and you want more details, come up to me afterwards. You can ask me or send me an, an email. But as a whole, I want to give you a broad Look at this, because at this point in the narrative of Acts, he's kind of being a little bit repetitive. He's going over this testimony over and over again. We've all heard the story of Paul's tra- uh, conversion. So it's, not, it's good for us to hear over and over. That's how the Bible is. But let's just give the big picture so you get the idea. The primary idea for us to draw our attention to, though, in this passage today is how Paul acts as a stranger or an alien in this world. He's different. He's set apart. And the world looks at him in a way that most would consider harsh or crazy, or he is out of touch, is what they think. There is a psychological concept that our world is constantly trying to teach each one of us, whether it's by the media or by the universities or whatever, they believe that we should re- be reject. We should. Let me let me say the sentence again. There's a psychological psychological concept our world tries to teach us that I believe should be rejected by believers in Jesus. Here's the concept: Everyone wants to fit in to the world we live in. You've heard that before. The world tells you we should all accept. Everybody, and everybody should want to fit in, right? You've heard this, right? That's a psychological concept that doesn't fit in a biblical worldview. I want you to understand what I mean. We all want to be accepted and treated just like everyone else. That's what the world teaches you, right? This is the mantra of the LGBT movement that says what? Just accept them. We're all the same. We're all equal. It's an agenda of the media, and it's the talking point of liberal universities and secular institutions. They teach everyone needs to be treated as if there is no one who is different from normal. Everything is normal. Everybody's okay. Treat everybody the same. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is strange, right? 
no matter how strange it may seem to us, it's not strange. It's actually normal. It's normal for somebody to dress up as a woman if they're a man. That's normal. Allow it. Accept it. Accept them. That's what they tell us, isn't it? That's what they're telling us. And all of this is based on the wrong biblical worldview of evolution. And the idea that we're all evolving and everybody is on their path and everybody's learning as they go. And so we should all be equal and we should all get along and everybody should look at everybody the same, no matter what. But as believers in Jesus, we often try to present being a Christian like this. And I want you to listen to me very, very closely. We say, in effect, we're just like everybody else on the planet. Come to us. Be like us. We're just like you. Many churches even try to attract people to their churches by presenting themselves as just like the world. Their motto is this. Come join us. We're just like you. But folks, true Christianity presents a totally different reality. We aren't like the world. We are strangers and aliens. We are wackos to the world. We deserve to be silenced in their mind. We need to be quiet. That's what the world thinks of Christianity. The truth is, true Christians stick out like a sore thumb. Do you understand? We do. That's why when you read chapters like 23, 24, 25, 26, you see the stark difference, right, between Paul and the religious Pharisees, between Paul and the Roman government, between his allegiance and everybody else. These are totally different. We are different. So if you want to fit in in this world, guess what? You can't be a Christian. Because Christians don't fit in. We're misfits. We're strange. We're wackos to the world. How many of you are okay with that? If we get the gospel, we are. Because this is not our home. Jesus is our Lord. And I don't know about you, but if the world is controlled by the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, I don't want to look anything like the world. I want to be different. As we track down through Paul's defenses, one thing becomes very clear. Paul is either considered mad, so he should be ignored as foolish, or he's considered an enemy to be killed. Friends, as time goes along, every one of us in this room will probably be considered one of those two things if we're walking with God. Some will look at you and say, you are out of your mind. And we will say what? Amen. <laughs> That's me. I have the mind of Christ, not the mind of the world anymore. I'm different. Others will look at us at us and say, you're offensive. You're worthy of being silenced. Would you please be quiet? But let's see how this unfolds in Paul's life. Notice first, we'll see his alien status will show up real quick. 
We all need to understand that if we stand for the truth of Jesus Christ, the world will often view us as foolish or even worse, its enemy. Let's start with a new governor brings new trouble. A new governor brings new trouble. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 25, it says, Fastest then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. And they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. At the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. What do we see here? Well, with a change in governors from Felix to Festus, there's a new attack levied on the apostle Paul. Previously, Felix had heard a trial or had a trial for Paul and then considered Paul not worthy of death. As a matter of fact, that he was most likely innocent. But he had left Paul in jail for two years. He left him in a place, if you see, I don't know if you can see this very well, but, oop, wrong button. Don't you love it when that happens? Oh, no. Wrong button. He didn't want to. Oh, would it put it back? Maybe. Or maybe not. Uh, looks like we're not gonna get not gonna get there real quick, huh guys? Here we go. So this is Caesarea in this area here, and you notice it out in this area here that reaches out into the water. That's most likely where the jail was in the area that Paul would have stayed. And don't don't for a second think that this was a pleasant uh, a hotel atmosphere on the water. It was most likely a rat-infested jail. It wasn't something really nice that he was staying in. But he stayed there for two years. And in light of staying there, he stayed there just because what? Felix didn't want to release him because he wanted to please the Jews. He didn't want the Jews getting angry at him. So he left him there, even though he was innocent. Now Festus takes over. And like every politician who seeks to win the approval of his people, he goes to the Jews in Jerusalem. He says, hey, I want to get these people behind me. Festus didn't care about Paul. Festus was, all, all he cared about was keeping control in his territory. He wanted the Jewish leaders to stay calm and be under control. So what did he do? He immediately went to Jerusalem and sought to gain the approval of the Jewish leaders. This is a case of the governor ruling shrewdly. He knew what to do. He was a good politician. The problem was there was a guy in his jail that he wanted, or the Jews wanted, dead. Paul was their enemy. They wanted him killed. Notice in verse 3 it literally says that they wanted to get him to Jerusalem so that on the way back to Jerusalem, what could they do? They could kill him. The Jews were trying to get Paul back to Jerusalem so along the way they could ambush him and just be done with him. So we see here clearly, what do we see? We see Paul was an enemy of the Jews, and yet the Jewish gov or the new Roman government governor didn't really care about him either. We see here 
that he was on, he was set up for another trial. So let's look at the second, a new trial. A new trial begin, brings a new defense. Look at verse 6. After they had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, what's that say, by the way? That says this politician spent some time in Jerusalem doing what? Smoozing people. <laughs> Building, you know, he's trying to build relationships. I want to keep these people what? Happy. So he hung out there for more than eight to ten days among them. He went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought in. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious, many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, look, quote, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, here you go, this is a nice setup. Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? What would that be? No, thank you. Don't want to go back to that place. I've been there, done that, have the marks to prove it. They beat me. I think I'll stay away from that city. I learned my lesson. I went to Jerusalem, I spoke, and they beat me up. And they want me dead. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried, which is where? Right there in Caesarea. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. That implies that the previous guy must have told him a little bit about his innocence. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if, None of these things is true of which these men accuse me. No one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. What is this? This is a new defense. Paul gives a new defense. And this defense is a little different than the last time. Because, see, last time he understood that Felix knew more about Christianity. But this guy, Festus, he's clueless. He has no idea. He's been, to, he's been given this new position as governor in this area. And in this area, what does that mean? He doesn't know much about this whole religion thing. What's he do? He appeals to Caesar. That's what Paul does. This time, the tri it is a trial before a trial. The Jews wanted Paul transported back to Jerusalem, but as we said, it was only to kill him on the way. This is somewhat like a grand jury. The charges were made and the evidence is given, but in this case, there wasn't much evidence. In fact, notice, after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, key phrase here, which they could not prove. So it was useless. They were just saying, hey, this guy's a, uh, uh, trying to make problems with the Roman government. Most likely, the way that he defends it is he, he was accused of sedition or also the law, bringing up the idea of the law and how 
he was no longer saying that we were under the Mosaic law. But for Festus, what did that mean? Nothing. Who cares? I don't care if you... I don't know anything about the law. But again, what did he really want? What did Festus want more than anything else? He wanted his people to get along. He wanted the Jews to like him. He wanted a peaceful place. He didn't want rebellion. And so he didn't really care about Paul. He was just looking for a way. So he asked him that question. Will you go back to Jerusalem with me? Last time, remember, Felix, the previous governor, knew knew about the way. So when Paul explained his circumstances, Felix dismissed the trial and sought further opportunities to hear from Paul. But this time, Paul is standing before a man that's clueless about religion, Festus. And Festus doesn't even appear to understand anything about Judaism or Christianity or anything. In fact, we will see Paul explains who Jesus is and what Paul believes. And Festus considers Paul what? A wacko. A man out of his mind. Festus is the typical pagan ruler who could care less about religious issues. In fact, he considered Paul that wacko, religious wacko. But Paul steps up and gives his defense. Notice we see here the Holy Spirit's working again. And it says, Paul said, look in your Bibles, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. A good defense, huh? I'm already talking in a court. You are the judge. I'm doing what I need to do. And then he says, if then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, what? I refuse to die. If I've done something wrong, I'm willing to accept what? The death penalty. That's courage, isn't it? Why would he say that? Well, because his conscience is clean. He knows he hasn't done anything worthy of death. And so he can boldly stand up and say that. He's not afraid, though, to die because what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if I do die, guess what? I'm going to heaven. That's fine. Whether to live or to die, it's okay. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if none of these things are true, which these men accuse me, No one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul states, why should I stand trial in Jerusalem? I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen who is on trial before Caesar's tribunal. Before you, you're the governor. They are accusing me of religious wrongs. But these aren't worthy of death and can't be proven. And if I have done something against the Roman Empire, fine, kill me. Again, Festus was a party man. What do I mean by that? He was a man of the Roman government. He knew the rules of the Roman government, and he wanted to keep to those rules. So what's he appeal to? My Roman citizenship. You say, where does it? it doesn't say anything about the citizenship here. When he says, I appeal to Caesar, do you understand that only a Roman citizen could say that? Only a Roman citizen could say, hey, And all Roman citizens had this. Hey, I appeal to Caesar, which means I get to go and stand before the emperor. By the way, at first glance, we might think, well, this is a good idea. Guess who he was appealing to? Nero. Now, 
If anybody in here knows anything about Nero, Nero was the guy that later on does what to Christians? He persecutes them. He uses them as torches in his party. In the last four or five years of his reign, he became a very, very wicked man. But the first four or five years, he was okay. It was before the Christianity had really become his scapegoat for burning down Rome. In this case, he was appealing to him before Nero was known to be that wicked man. And in fact, it was a safer place, wasn't it? Which was safer, going to Jerusalem or going to Rome? At that moment, we're going to Rome. Even standing before Nero was better than going back to Jerusalem because what did they want? His head. They wanted him dead. If a Roman citizen appeared, appealed to Caesar, there was no choice. And Festus knew it. He must stand before Caesar. At this point, Festus had no choice. Paul had to stand before Caesar. Was this a wise choice for Paul? Absolutely. Because Nero hadn't shown that he, he was this. And we also have to remember, though, Jesus had promised that when you go on trial before men, I will give you what? The words to say. So who's in control here? Ultimately, the Lord's working. So Festus answered the only way he could. You have appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar you shall go. With this, Paul escapes another wicked plot of the Jews. What do we learn here? Well, the enemy's ruthless. That's what we learn. He wanted Paul dead. He pursued Paul for two years. They were constantly seeking to kill this man. The Jews were not content with Paul just being in prison. They wanted him dead. They sought every means possible to kill him, but God interceded on behalf of his child, and he protected Paul over and over again. Oh, folks, isn't this encouraging? Look, wherever you are, you're not outside of the God's sovereign protecting hand. He's a good God, isn't he? He takes care of us. No matter how much the enemy hates us, guess what? He sees us and he's in control and he loves us. That's encouraging. We see here being a believer in Jesus often brings hatred from the world, but it doesn't matter if God is on his throne and he is, he will take care of us. Again, we are aliens and strangers in this world. Often we just don't fit in. <clears throat> and again, are you okay with that? Are you okay with not fitting in, not being accepted by everybody? By the way, just a side note here, and take this very, take this to heart. If your whole life is about being accepted by people, you're never going to be able to enjoy your Christian walk with Christ. If you are constantly looking and hoping that everybody likes me, please, I don't want you to make you mad at me. I want you to be happy with me all the time. Guess what? You're going to do one of two things. You're either going to compromise and not be who you are in Christ, or you're going to walk around what? Miserable. Miserable. Oh, man, somebody else is out to get me. Folks, the only hope is found in Christ. We don't need anything else, do we? We have him. Even if all of y'all, God forbid, hopefully it doesn't happen, but if it does, all of y'all turned on me, guess what? I've got Christ and I'm okay. 
Jonathan Edwards preached for years in this church, and at the end, guess what? He was voted out by his congregation. Why? Because the enemy is wicked and evil. Our satisfaction is not found in how people treat us. Yes? Not found in how well we're treated by the outside world, because if it is, guess what? We are miserable people. But we're satisfied with Jesus. He's enough, isn't he? And so Paul presses on. The good news is God's in control, and hey, we ain't dying one minute before what? He's determined it. And we keep going. But he uses us, praise God, right, to share the gospel. We live in a world that doesn't get it, in a world that often hates us, in a world where we are either considered fools or enemies. So this brings us to the next stage of the trial. It's been verse three, or the third point. A new king brings a new inquiry. Look at verse 13. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets the accuser face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with them about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I and send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Once again, what do we see? Paul brings intrigue from Roman governing officials. Agrippa was a king over the Jewish area. And by the, by the way, Bernice was not his wife. Bernice was his sister. He knew, Agrippa, however, knew Jewish law. And he knew the Jewish religion a lot more. He knew about them and knew about their religious customs. So when King Agrippa comes to pay respect to the new governor, Festus, Festus brings this guy up to King Agrippa because he was an expert in this. He can give him some good insight on this and what kind of letter he should send, as we will see. Festus saw this as an opportunity to get some insights into the religious confusion and the tension between Paul and the Jews. So Festus, as we see in this section, laid out the details of Paul's circumstances. We see a hint that Festus realized Paul was a Roman citizen, right? And there didn't appear to be anything really deserving of being sent even to Caesar. Festus was 
a typical, like I said, pagan ruler who didn't understand the Jewish conflict. However, notice he did associate it with one main point, and I want you to note this in your Bibles because this is crucial. If there's one thing, if there's one thing we want the government or anybody in our city or our world to take note of us, if there's one thing we want them to say, this guy is all about this one point, and this one point is really the main issue, if we could all say this is the one thing, this would be it. Look what it says. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against Paul, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be what? Oh, folks, this is the one thing we want to be known for. How about you? Not somebody that's out there preaching some righteousness, even, you know, preaching about rules. I don't want to be known as the guy that confronts everybody about their sin. That's not really what my main point is. I want to be known as the guy that believes in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I'm a guy that's all about Jesus that rose from the dead bodily. That's what we should be all about. And this is exactly what happened. Festus looks at Paul and says, this guy's got a problem because he says Jesus rose from the dead. And beloved, listen. I want to be known as a stranger and an alien by the world because of that truth. Not because I look self-righteous to the world. Mark this. Mark this. I don't want to be known as a guy that's all about the social gospel. I want to be known all about what? Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I want to be known as the guy that all he talks about is what? Jesus and his resurrection. What do you think the world thinks of people that talk all about Jesus and the resurrection? They think we're wacko. To the world, to the Gentile, it's what? Foolishness. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. They hate it. Because their Messiah was killed and rose from the dead. They killed him. They were a part of it, along with all of us, right? Responsible for his death. All you who have trusted in Christ. However, we see King Agrippa was intrigued by this, right? He knew about the Mosaic customs and the law. He was interested. He was an interested observer. This does not, by the way, mean that Agrippa believed. I think he knew the truth, but it was not a believer. He had not trusted in Christ. It just meant he was intrigued and wanted to hear more. You know, there's the tale of uh, Benjamin Franklin that he would go and listen to George Whitfield. It's not that, George, that Benjamin Franklin ever believed in Jesus. It doesn't appear that there was any conversion of Benjamin Franklin. But he would travel just to hear George Whitfield. There's an element where the message of Jesus is very intriguing to the world at times. People say, really? He died and rose from the dead? And you're out here preaching? And you live for somebody that died and rose from the dead? Yes, we do. 
So what do we see? We see here that yet another example of God providentially providing a way for the gospel to be proclaimed. Oh, folks, please get this one point. Aliens and strangers, that's who we are. But God in his providence is working in this world to set up opportunities for us to do what? Exalt Jesus. What makes somebody an alien or stranger in this world? It's what they do with Jesus. It's what they do with him. If we embrace him, we exalt him. And if we exalt him, that makes us different from this world. Because everybody else looks at Jesus and what do they do with him? They minimize him. And they make it all about self-righteousness. But Paul made it all about the dead man who rose from the dead. The God-man, Jesus. If we put ourselves in Paul's shoes for a minute here, we will see how our circumstances often don't make sense also at first. But as time goes along, we see God's work glorifying himself through our lives. How many, how many of you think that, that those two years in jail sitting on that, in, on that island or that peninsula that stuck out into the water, how many of you think Paul started wondering, what are you doing? I guarantee you, there were times where he was like, what's going on? Two years. You said I'm going to testify before Rome. I'm here. But I want you to understand, folks, that God was setting up this whole thing and wait until you see the testimony before King Agrippa. It's masterful. It's all about Christ. I don't understand why the things happen in our lives. Are y'all with me? Why do we go through surgeries with my son? Why do I have to sit there? Why do I sit there and watch him go through these, this pain? It's hard at 1.30 in the morning. From 1.30 to 3, he's in agonizing pain. Why do we go through these circumstances? Well, maybe it's that doctor that came in that last day and I got to share a little bit about the gospel with him. We don't know. But God brings us in all these circumstances, what? To glorify himself. See our circumstances that way. That's how Paul did. Then we see in fourth, a new defense brings a new opportunity. Look at verse 25, 23. So on the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and, the entered, the, and entered the atrium accompanied with the, by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought, to not, he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Who's my Lord? That's Caesar. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems absurd to me to, in sending a prisoner, not to indicate also the charges against him. 
Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Clearly, we see Festus didn't think Paul was guilty, right? A governing official, he's given his defense, he's made his appeal to Caesar, and Festus saw what? Paul wasn't worthy of death. It was just a religious problem. But Festus turns the issue into an opportunity to make a big deal out of the issue. Folks, you know what this was? This is almost like uh, setting up a grand ball. The way the pomp, the idea, let's make a spectacle. And if you can put yourself in this situation for just a little bit, you have all these dignitaries. You have the king and his sister. You have the new governor. You have all these gentlemen out there. And in comes who? Paul. The guy that's been rotting in prison for the last two years. I, I would love to. I can't wait to get to heaven and get this one back on my heavenly VCR. I wonder what kind of clothes and what it looked like when he walks into this great place with all these people and this pomp. And he walks in and says what? Okay, you can defend yourself. It's like what? It's, it's set up. It's, it's crazy. You've got all these smart, powerful people. And Paul steps up, and what he does is, is he gives this long defense of how he really didn't do anything wrong. Please forgive me. I'm a good guy. You know, I, I keep the law. I did what the Jews told me to do. No, this is, I'm being sarcastic again. No, he stands up and he says, Jesus Christ is who I live for now. He died and rose from the dead. And then in the middle of it, he says, and it's a really neat, I was talking to the kids before about this, there's a really neat little phrase where he says, in effect, you who don't really get the resurrection. He brings up the resurrection to all these powerful people. And he says, in the middle of his defense, he says, it's about this resurrection thing. Do you understand, folks? The resurrection is not just a small little detail in the gospel presentation. Do you understand the resurrection is the crucial element of the, of the gospel presentation? I mean, think about this. What do we do with signs? I, I see this all the time. This, guy, this frustrates me a little bit. I'm being honest. We have all these signs, and we're portrayed, Christians are portrayed as those people that call out sin. Yes, we call out sin. I get it. Were these people sinners that he was talking to? Was King Agrippa a sinner? He was dead lost. Was Festus a sinner? Did he spend four, you know, 10 to 20 minutes describing just how sinful they were? No, it doesn't appear. His main mantra was what? Jesus. Jesus came and he died and he rose from the dead. That's the main message. You can summarize the whole thing with, I was a sinner. Jesus visited me, the one that died and rose from the dead. And now he's calling everybody to repent and believe in him. That's his message. And God is using me this way. Can you imagine? Here's the signs that we should have. Jesus 
died and Jesus rose from the dead bodily. How do you think the world would accept that message? The same way. You're going to focus on that? The resurrection of Jesus? Yes. Again, I'm, I'm going to tread into thin ice here. None of you have seen somebody rise from the dead, have you, after three days? None of us, right? But it happened. What does it show? Jesus is Lord. Do you understand? He's alive, and that's the testimony. My life is Christ is alive. My sins are paid for. And so we'll close here with his testimony, and then what we'll do next week is we'll look at it in more detail. I tried. Can't get all the way through it. Let's read the testimony to conclude, though. In Acts chapter 26, verses 2 to 23. This is a testimony. In regard to all things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I'm standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And, and, and for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Do you see that little question there? That was the hook. He went in and talked to the audience and then brought him back into his testimony. Why do you think it's so crazy that Jesus rose from the dead? So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so enraged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appointed you, to appoint you a minister 
and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jews, Jewish people and the Gentiles. I really do believe that at this point, Paul is interrupted. <laughs> he's in the middle and he's just about to give a full explanation. I would imagine that he would explain even more about Christ and the resurrection. But this was the main point. And what was the response? You're out of your mind. You're crazy. Your great learning, Paul, is driving you mad. Beloved, what do we see from the Apostle Paul here? It's very clear. We are aliens and strangers in this world. And when we proclaim Jesus Christ and all that he has done and the U-turn that's happened in our lives because Christ is alive and paid for our sin, the world looks at us and either wants to what? Kill us or consider us wackos. Beloved, if the world loves you, the world just wants to accept you perfectly. Oh, you're just like me. Then maybe your testimony doesn't fit the way. Folks, that's convicting, isn't it? There's hope, isn't there? His name is Jesus. He came to die for even us weak Christians. He loves us. What a good God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this testimony. Thank you for what you did in the Apostle Paul showing us that our lives are to be different. God, give us the courage to be ready to give a testimony. We pray that anyone here that doesn't have a testimony of Christ's grace and love in their life, we pray that today will be the day that they turn from their sin and trust in Him. That they will see and understand that Jesus is their only hope, that they are deserving of judgment, That, but God, you have saved them. Please save them. And Father, us that are believers, we pray that you will help us to testify of your grace and your goodness, that we may proclaim Jesus, the resurrected one, the Lord, and our, and our Savior. 
We pray today, God, that you will use us the rest of this week coming up to exalt your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.